This episode of Earl Grey is brought to you by Audible.com, offering more than 180,000 titles for smartphone, tablet, and desktop. To get a free audiobook of your choice and help Trek FM at the same time, visit audibletrial.com slash trekfm. And also by Enterprise in Space, an international program of the nonprofit National Space Society. Find out how you can help science and education and become a virtual crew member aboard the NSS Enterprise Orbiter by visiting enterpriseinspace.org. Hi, this is Robert O'Reilly. My name is Gowron. Honor to you and your house. You're listening to Trek FM. Welcome to another episode of Earl Grey. I'm your host, Justin Ozer, and join with me today are the wonderful Amy Nelson and the amazing Richard Marquez. How are you doing today, Amy? I am doing very well. It was a wonderful week last week celebrating uh, 30 years of Next Generation, and to see all my friends' posts and on the Babel Conference, all the love that Next Gen got and has received just really continued my warm and fuzzies for the week. So very happy camper over here. Excellent. And how are you doing, Richard? I'm good. <laughs> uh, yeah, I'm good. <laughs> no warm and fuzzies. Sorry, Amy. <laughs> I have enough to go around. There we go. There we go. I'll take some. I'll take some. <laughs> how you doing, right. Justin? <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm doing great. You know, 30th anniversary of TNG. We have new Star Trek every week now. I'm just doing great. <laughs> what can I say? So we're going to actually start out by doing something um, a little bit different today. Uh, so we're going to look at the most uh, recent episode where we got comments on the Babel conference. Now, because we record this about a week and a half before the show comes out, this is going to be two episodes before. Uh, but we did receive some comments on the Babel conference about our uh, 30th anniversary uh, show that I wanted to, to read out. Uh, so uh, Greg Malumbi said, very nice episode. Thank you for the special 30th anniversary edition of the show this week. I'm going to post my memories of TNG in a couple of days on my page, but I just wanted to say one of the things I remember asking you guys when you were going to take over was don't forget about the 30th anniversary of the show and the legacy it left behind. Yes, we have a new Star Trek this week with Discovery, but last night after I rewatched the two Discovery episodes, I went back to continue my 30th anniversary rewatch of TNG. So thank you, Greg. Glad you enjoyed that. And you did start a thread in the Babel conference where people shared all kinds of great memories of TNG. And we really appreciate that as part of the celebration of the 30th anniversary of the next generation. Yeah, I enjoyed reading all of those posts. As I said, it just is so nice that people still remember and appreciate the next generation. And it was so wonderful on Thursday, the 28th of September, which was the actual anniversary. There was all of this stuff going on on Facebook and Twitter, people sharing their memories and appreciating the next generation. It was nice, you know, even in the midst of Discovery getting all of the attention, which it should for, for you know, 
that one day, it was all about the next generation, and I, I really loved that. So uh, there was another comment I wanted to, to read, a short one, but from Christopher Baca saying, enjoyed the podcast, some really great interviews. Um, glad you enjoyed the interviews. You know, Amy and I went to STLV and, and gathered those interviews of some of the uh, TNG actors and, and some fans. If you haven't heard that episode, there's some great interviews on there um, that uh, we think you should check out. Um, and I'm glad that uh, people enjoyed that. Yeah, it was really fun. Really fun. All right. So now let's move on to our main topic. Uh, today we'll be starting a two-part series on Michael Piller, uh, who made a huge contribution to Star Trek. He was the showrunner for The Next Generation from seasons three to five. And a lot of people credit him with helping to improve the overall quality of the show um, after a rocky first couple of seasons, which saw uh, many writers come and go. And during that period, he's probably most famous for writing The Best of Both Worlds two-parter, uh, which was hugely influential and took TNG's popularity to a whole new level. Uh, he was also a co-creator on Deep Space Nine and Voyager and, and the showrunner for those shows uh, for the first couple of seasons. Um, and he capped off his career with Star Trek by co-writing uh, Insurrection. Um, he did sadly pass away from cancer in November of 2005. And before we get into talking about some of the episodes where he had writing credits, um, Amy, I think you had gathered some information about some of the, the tributes to Michael Piller that happened at the time of his death in 2005. Yeah, it was, I feel like I know Michael Piller a little bit better after reading uh, these comments um, that so many people uh, talked about and gave tribute to Michael Piller. Eric Stilwell um, actually had quite a bit to say and, and uh, Stilwell worked with Piller on Next Gen Insurrection and Voyager and said he was the creative genius behind DS9 and Voyager, not only because he had enormous talent as a writer, but because he also honored and deeply respected the creative wisdom of Gene Roddenberry. Michael Piller believed the limitations that were imposed on the writers ultimately made them better storytellers. And I believe this is also true of the writers who studied under Michael's tutelage, whether they appreciate it or not. Perhaps Pillar's best contribution to the industry was his nurturing of new writers. He accepted scripts from non-professional writers, something that was unheard of in the industry. Michael was a prospector who had a talent for finding those rare nuggets of gold in the avalanche of mud. Over the years, Michael Pillar discovered and mentored dozens and dozens of young writers in Hollywood. And I think Star Trek is known for, you know, accepting scripts you know, from your everyday Joe Blow who wants to send in something. And if there's something good, then it was taken. And we have seen episodes on Star Trek because of that. Yeah. And I'm so glad that he had that policy because it started some people's careers. That's how they found uh, Ronald D. Moore, who was a huge influence in the next generation, Deep Space Nine, and created the um, the reboot of Battlestar Galactica, and also Brian Fuller was one of the people that uh, got a chance through that kind of program. And of course, you know, he has had already a huge influence on Discovery. He's not working on it anymore, but you know, the direction in the first couple of episodes, he's had an influence on that, and he got his career started. And there's tons of stories like that. So I think it's really great that he opened the the door to that kind of policy. Yeah, I really like uh, Linda Foley had to say, and she worked with Pillar on Voyager. And said, without him, lots of writers wouldn't have gotten their first breaks. When I would get writer's block or have problems with the rewrites, he always gave the same advice. 
It's always about the human condition. Go back to that and you'll find your story. And so we can see as we, you know, go over this two part, we're going to see the stories and that human condition that Michael Pillar was so uh, wanting to convey to the, the audience. Will Wheaton wrote in his blog that Pillar was more responsible than anyone else for Next Gen transforming itself into the amazing show it became in season four. As far as I can tell, Pillar was one of the very few genuinely good people who worked in the industry. Larry Nemechek said from day one, Michael Pillar had an incredible impact not only on mar- modern Star Trek, but on many, many writers as well. Michael Okuda says that Michael Piller has a reputation as an all-around nice guy. He was a class act, a generous soul, and a genuinely nice guy to work for. Armin Shimmerman, who knew Michael Piller personally, said that the world has lost a heart of gigantic proportions. He cared for humanity and, through his good works, addressed mankind's calamities and inequalities and successes. We will miss that moral core that he clothed in quiet understanding, wry humor, and love of baseball, and a resolve to do the very best in everything. He set his mind to. Michael Piller was a brilliant writer, and his soul lives on through the tough-minded, imaginative stories he gave us. And one last one uh, I'd like to close with. Jerry Taylor says that Michael Piller fought a personal battle against head and neck cancer, but remained that nice guy his colleagues had grown to love. Pillar's courage, determination, and amazing sense of humor during his ordeal at the end was inspirational. And I think you can really tell someone's character when they're going through something as terminal cancer like that, um, how they are in their true character. And and I think it speaks volume for who Michael Pillar was as a person. Yeah, thank you for uh, putting that together. Those are some beautiful tributes that um, that happened at the time that Michael Pillar died, um, almost uh, 12 years ago. It was November 1st, 2005. So right. uh, we thought, um, you know, it would be a good tribute as well to talk about the episodes that he wrote or, or co-wrote. Um, and we're breaking it into two parts because he has writing credits on um, 13 episodes and, and one movie for The Next Generation. So today we'll be talking about the first uh, seven of those. I'll just list it out and then you know, we'll have discussions on each of them. Uh, so that's Evolution, Booby Trap, The Enemy, The Best of Both Worlds, Parts 1 and 2, uh, First Contact, and Ensign Row. And in the next episode of Earl Grey, we'll talk about the other half, which is uh, six additional episodes plus Insurrection. Um, so let's talk about the first episode where, where he got a writing credit, which was Evolution. Now, this was the season three opener, and in that episode, there's a scientist who visits the Enterprise D. He has an experiment related to a star, which can only be done, I think, like every hundred years or something like that. And in the meantime, uh, Wesley is a little negligent with one of his experiments. These nanites get out, they start reproducing and wreaking havoc on on the ship. Um, And they have to struggle to kind of understand what's going on with this situation. Richard, you're you are shaking your head. You have some things to say about this episode. This is a reason why you don't have children on a, on a, on the Enterprise. You got things like this, go havoc and everything. I mean, the guy even says okay, it's actually 196 years. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, come on. You got to, I mean, Will Wheaton. Seriously. I mean, I'm sorry. Not Will Wheaton. Um, Crusher or Wesley Crusher. Come on. Get with the program. <laughs> Everybody makes mistakes. <laughs> 
So hard uh, on Wesley. I know. Very much so. It's actually probably the one of the very few episodes that I actually sympathize with him. <laughs> um, okay. Actually, so I guess I'll start. <laughs> so I actually really uh, love this episode. Uh, it's it's very creative. I absolutely love the idea. I mean, granted, it was brought upon as an accident, but at the same time, it uh, it created this essential being that um, in the ship's computer that's that's absolutely phenomenal. I, I absolutely love the idea that they were trying to save it and whatnot. But like, it's one of my favorite episodes of this season. All right, what, what do you think about the episode, Amy? Yeah, I really like it. Um, definitely, you can see Wesley Crusher and, you know, he's under a lot of pressure of school. And I know all about that. My poor students complain to me all the time and they're staying up late. And when they come to me in the morning, oh, I was up all night doing homework. And so I definitely can relate with Wesley Crusher. And yes, it's the little sob story I hear. Um, but he does take responsibility and, you know, comes up and starts setting the traps and trying to, I think he's a little sly and tries to do it by himself without getting anyone involved. Like he's trying to fix it by himself, but that just doesn't work with these nanites, does it? Mm-mm. No. And Guinan tells him, Hey, you got to tell somebody. Yes. <laughs> so, so he does. Um, I, I really, I love this episode. I, always have a soft spot for the ones where there's kind of a new life form and they're trying to understand it and, and figure out what's going on and to communicate. And, and this is one of those, those episodes. And I thought it was great that it was like these little machines that kind of re- reproduce. Um, and I think that they were, uh, you know, kind of prophetic about this because now we talk about nanotechnology and little nano machines that might be able to, you know, fix things or do surgery or things like that. Uh, but I just like that it's something that looks like it's this piece of technology, but they're trying to, it's almost like in the course of the episode, they have their own um, like discovery that they want to do and exploring what's out there, which they do by eating things. But um, but it, it's like this, this other way that they have of exploring uh, their world. And I like that they understand it and that, and that Picard helps to work things out and doesn't want to just destroy all of them. I, I love when, when Picard does that. Uh, so it's an episode I, I always enjoy a lot. Um, Michael Pillars saw the episode as a real opportunity for character growth for Wesley. And this is a Wesley-centric mm. episode. And he says, I had this story about nanites. Once I got to know the scientist and realized who he was, I realized that the scientist is Wesley in 40 years. So that's interesting to see Dr. Stubbs, you know, and just this is where Wesley could end up. Um, and Pillar continues to say um, that he's a smart kid who's dedicated to his work and seems not to have much else going on, as, on in his life. If I use that relationship to get it down to a more human level, I can help Wesley grow. I can help Wesley move into a relationship with a girlfriend. That became the key element to Beverly's re-entry into the series, which was my son is not having a normal childhood. We know a lot of kids like that. I saw that and had a sense that it was needed. Oh, yeah. Good point also that this is where, where Beverly Crusher comes back on the show after being gone for a season replaced by Dr. Pulaski. So, yes. yeah, that's a, that's a really interesting insight. So the next episode where uh, Pillar received a writing credit also in season three is uh, season three, episode six, Booby Trap. So the main part of this is the Enterprise goes into a debris field. They get kind of 
stuck by this force that had trapped this ship, this alien ship about a thousand years ago. And they have to figure out what's what's going on. Um, in the course of it, maybe what it's most famous for is Jordy going to the holodeck to try to to figure out a way to fix this, and he meets the holographic Leo Brahms. <laughs> That's probably what it's most known for. Um, but I, I like the idea that they have to kind of get out of the situation. I mean, also, like, using the holodeck to try to figure out a, a problem is, is pretty cool. But, um, yeah, kind of falls in love with this hologram while the ship's in crisis and i don't think it's jordy's best moment but what do you guys think of the episode i actually like i really enjoyed this episode uh it uh, i love some of the uh, i love the comment that they um, right before they uh leave for the uh the tra- on the transporter good lord didn't anyone here build ships in bottles <laughs> oh yeah which, i love that scene which you know you know something like that obviously is popular probably well i don't know about popular maybe a long time ago it was but i'm sure it's still alive um today and um to have something like a a, a hobby like that i mean where you can like transport you could just make it transport it, and put it into your uh into the bottle or something like that instead of fiddling around but um it, it takes a lot of great patience to do something like that, and I absolutely love that uh, that that it, he brought that up. Uh, that this ship is what he made in a bottle, and um, yeah, I absolutely love. I love. I love. You know, recall it to the past uh, for you know even even to someone's childhood like that, and that's great. Um, overall, I love this episode. I love. Uh, unfortunately, it sucks that you know Jordy doesn't get you know. The love story he has to he has to fall in love with a with a holographic character I guess or holographic interpretation of a person and it sucks <laughs> I mean it's sweet but uh, yeah it, it it sucks that it has that it turns into that <laughs> well it's interesting I mean when you talk about that where you've got Jordy who's in engineering and Lieutenant Reginald Barkley who's also in engineering and they just both can't get along with people and specifically women. And it's it's interesting to see that parallel between those two because Jordy sometimes gives Barkley such a hard time, but here he is falling in love and going to the holodeck for Leah Brahms. You know, I just, it's it's interesting oh. to see those two play off each other. We but, hadn't seen Barclay just yet. Well, I know, but I'm talking in general. <laughs> in general, okay. All and right. We can imagine gener- he was there. It would generate. It wouldn't generate uh, Amy's favorite uh, line. <laughs> Regal Barkey, great joy and gratitude. Great joy. No, that's from um, Encounter at Farpoint. Yeah, but the no, goddess. Whatever. Yeah. Never mind. Yeah, that's what I meant. <laughs> I thought it was Hollow Pursuits where he has the goddess of empathy. Say yeah, that. but that's what I thought. That's what. I, yeah, that's what I mean. Yeah, yeah, but she says great joy and gratitude in Encounter at Farpoint when okay. the little tentacle people are... You're, That's yeah. right, she did, I didn't she? I think you're she? right about that. Yeah, yeah she did. Of but course I'm about right that. about that, you guys. Come on. Hmm. <laughs> <laughs> yes, the, uh, my quote is not from Goddess of Empathy, but I... I swear to God, I thought it was. Okay, okay. well, Barclay, right. Barclay has seen the tapes of Encounter at Farpoint, and he uses that in his holographic there representation. Yes, okay. There you go. See, there's always a, there's always a back door. Yes. <laughs> there always is. Um, another thing I like about this episode is toward the end, uh, Picard goes to... Um, to the con and pilots the ship out of it because he's the best person to do it, I guess. 
Um, I don't know if you see that too often, but I think it's really cool. He's, he's totally into it and knows exactly what he wants to do and is even, I think at one point doing something that data doesn't anticipate. And he's like, Oh my goodness, I can't believe you did that. (laughs) It's captain's prerogative. Yeah. So that's, that's fun in the episode. Another, you know, bit of trivia about the episode is this was directed, Booby Trap was directed by Gabriel uh, Beaumont, the first woman to direct a Star Trek episode. Yes. That's an important milestone for that. So the next one that uh, that he uh, wrote was The Enemy. Uh, the very next episode, season three, episode seven. Uh, now this is an episode where, um, let's see, I think they're, they're investigating... Um, a ship that's that's crashed on a planet and I think a Romulan ship and in the midst of this terrible whatever kind of electrical storm uh, Jordy falls down a hole and gets kind of lost um, and they have to beam up and while he's there he uh, encounters a, a Romulan who's there and they have to kind of work together to get out of the situation I, I really like this episode uh, what do you guys think uh, it's all right <laughs> really uh it, it i mean i i get the whole you know they're they're different and they have to work together in order to uh for common good and and whatnot um yeah was it one of one it wasn't one of those episodes where i would go back and watch again and um like like some of these other uh episodes that we're talking about um it's it just wasn't i mean it, granted i mean it shows uh it also shows you know that you know, this was the episode where Worf has to donate blood, right? Yes. Yeah. So and, and he, yeah, he wouldn't do that to save mm-hmm. Raman's uh, yeah. life, and which you know I can understand where he's coming from, but at, at the same time, it you know it tackles that issue of um, you know holding back all those uh, grudges and and whatnot, and it, it, you could ser- you could obviously serve this for many purposes, but I mean it's it's not one of those ones that I really really wa- uh, go back and watch so but i mean it's a it's a it's a decent episode it really is it, it sends a really good message i think, really like this i mean you get sort of two different perspectives on how to work with your enemy or not work with your enemy if you choose like so you've got the geordie story that's down on the planet and he's basically forced to have to be working with this Romulan and they're not friends They're, you know, and the Romulan's like, you're my prisoner. Oh, well, good job. Cause there's only us here and whatever, you know, and they really have to work together. So you see that relationship and how they both have to, in order to survive, in order to get out, they have to work together. So you have that story while you have the story that's going on, on the enterprise where Worf, He's his life is not impacted one way or the other over this Romulan. And so he's not forced to work with him. And so he chooses not to, even though Picard and Picard, thankfully, doesn't order him strongly recommends it. But Worf has that choice where Geordi is in a situation where, you know, it's live or die. And so when it's those dire of circumstances, you're going to work with whomever you can to make it out alive. And here we have Worf choosing not to. So I think it's an interesting dynamic and I think it's a very well-written story and brings up a lot about humanity and what choices we make with whom we work with. Yeah, I, I really like it as as well. And I think it's one of um, probably the first time and one of the few times where we actually 
you know, see someone from the Federation really working with, with a Romulan trying to get past those, those kinds of barriers because they have to. Um, and it has one of my favorite scenes in it toward the beginning after Jordy falls down the, the, the hole and he sees that there's this compound and, and, uh, you know, hits it with his phaser and it turns into like these, these stone picks that he can climb up the shaft. I think that's awesome. That's like Jordy at some of his engineering best when he does that. So I love that part. I love that they're, that he has to work together with, with this, this Romulan, um, and that, um, he has to really, you know, get past all of his preconceived notions and the Romulan needs to as well. Um, in order to work together. I do wonder if it might have been maybe more interesting or powerful if it was Worf that was stuck on the planet and that had to work together with the Romulan and was forced to. That may have actually been a stronger choice Mm -hmm. now that I think about it. Mm-hmm. Well, well, the plot point of Worf letting Patak die by refusing blood <laughs> met great resistance among some of the writing staff and Michael Dorn when it was suggested by Michael Piller. So it was his idea. Dorn commented, I called the producers and said, I don't agree. I thought giving blood was an honorable thing to do. I thought people would look at Worf as a murderer. The producers felt that Worf was getting to be too human, just a guy with a big head. When the opportunity came for them to show that Worf was not human, that he was bound by the same morals as we are, they felt it was a wonderful opportunity. In hindsight, however, Dorn saw the wisdom of the decision, remarking how it revealed the different sides of Worf. And Michael Piller noted, Rick Berman knew instantly it was the right thing to do. Once he was behind me, it was a race to the finish line, and it was absolutely the right thing to do. You knew the audience was waiting for Worf to come around because they always do that in television. But the character wouldn't do that, and I think we made a really good decision. At first, though, it was quite a shock and controversial decision. But you end up talking about survival and survival among enemies. I think it was just a natural character development. And I agree. I think yeah. the choice to not is is shocking because, yeah, you're used to everything in television and episodic. You know, everything's got to be resolved in 45 minutes. And this was not. It's a great ending. Yeah, I think it's a really strong decision that they decided not to do that because if he, if Picard had ordered him or if he was just like, oh, well, I guess I'll, I'll do that then it loses some of the, the the power because it makes it seem like this long-standing animosity can just be done away with right away. But those things take a lot of time. And so I appreciate the choice that they made for Worf not to um, to, to, to give the blood because he's not going to get past that, you know, decades or maybe even his whole life animosity that he's had toward, toward Romulans. He's so I think it's a really strong choice, choice they made. And you wouldn't have been able to have that if it was Worf on, on the planet like I had suggested. But I, I like the episode a lot. And I think it doesn't get talked about, you know, en- enough um, because I, I think it's just really strong on both sides um, of, of the episode. Sorry, it doesn't quite do it for you as much, Richard. Hey, that's all right. That's all right. <laughs> Not every story, uh, you know, resonates with you more than the next one. No. (laughs) Well, shall we go on to the next one? Yes. All right. So after writing those couple of episodes and, you know, being the showrunner for Next Generation for a season, um, Michael Piller, again, is probably most famous for writing Best of Both Worlds parts one and two. Uh, And of course, part one had 
probably one of the greatest cliffhangers in in Star Trek history that people watching it at, at the time, you know, kind of ruined their summer to see, to think about what was going to happen if Picard was going to live and all of that. I don't think I need to go over a plot summary of it because I think we all know what it what it's about. But uh, Richard, do you want to give some thoughts on Best of Both Worlds? So I remember the day that uh, Best of Both Worlds came out, or at least not the be- not the day, but the the summer. It was probably the most miserable summer I've ever had because, well, not miserable summer, but it, it definitely was like you know it, speculating what was going on. This happened uh, right around uh, this June eighteenth of nineteen ninety, and that summer I remember. Everyone I knew that knew that loved Star Trek, we were talking about it, and we we're like, "What? What's going to go? Ha- what's going to happen? Is Picard going to die? Is he, is this?" I mean, it was just it generated so much conversation, and people that I had no idea. Now, granted, I don't see them anymore because this was elementary school <laughs> for me. But uh, but yeah, like uh, it definitely uh, it was one of those memorable uh, cliffhangers that I I mean, you just you you were in awe when you saw that whole, that whole. The, the, the entire episode and what was going on and everything. And I think it was, it blew my mind back then. I don't know about you guys. Did you guys see it for the very first time back in 1990? No, I, I didn't. Did you, Amy? No, nope. I, oh, nope. I man. hadn't been turned on to it quite yet. So I caught it, but when I got the DVDs and they only came out one season at a time, and so I remember getting the DVDs and watching it. I'm like, oh, I have to wait like two months to get the next release of season four, you know. So I had a cliffhanger experience while I waited. Well, it was probably one month for the next Yeah, I was going to say, yours wasn't as long as ours was. <laughs> right. Because <laughs> I was only like eight. <laughs> or wait, eight? Yeah, I was eight years old. Yeah, when... No, actually, I was seven. Um, but um, when the episode came about, but like, oh my gosh, yeah, it was crazy. <laughs> it was a crazy summer. <laughs> well, you know, and, and learning more about Next Gen and Michael Pillar, like one thing I remember, and you'd see on the DVDs, like, you know, Michael Pillar came on for season three, and he wasn't sure if he was going to be coming back, and so he mm-hmm. wrote this Best of Both Worlds Part One. And he he says that he was just he wrote the crap out of it and left it as a cliffhanger because how did he care it was going to resolve? He was going to be done. You know, he wasn't sure if he was coming back. And so then when Gene Roddenberry talked to him and was like, we want you to come back. And then he was like, oh, crap. Now I have to figure out how are they going to get Picard, you know? And so it was really, I think it's interesting to see that he was writing this cliffhanger and he had no idea how they were going to get out of this one, you know? So that's pretty that interesting. Could you imagine yeah. if they actually killed him off? Um, <clears throat> you know, I, I have thought about it actually. I mean, so the thing is like for me, not having watched it at the time, not I knew that Picard would continue, you know? I knew that it would get resolved in a certain way, but but I think at the time there were a couple of things like it was they weren't sure if Patrick Stewart was going to come back for the next season. I think legitimately when they were writing it, they didn't know that. And also because Tasha Yar had been killed off in the first season, I think it probably seemed possible that they might kill off another main character. Um, and it would have been a very different show if if you know Riker had continued as as the captain. I mean, I think it would have taken it in a whole different direction, 
But I would say probably if if best of both worlds were made today, they would have killed off Picard and taken that different direction because that's more how TV works now. For sure, yeah. <laughs> that makes you but, sad. <laughs> but we're but so I mean, glad uh, we still have Picard. You know, yes. right? <laughs> yeah, because I mean, you think of all of the things that happened after Best of Both Worlds, right? There was there was family that happened. There was the inner light and all good things. And of course, a whole bunch of other episodes, but so many great Picard moments that you think of. And if it had been cut short there, that would have been kind of insane to miss out on on all of those things. But I think it's a real credit to to Michael Pillar um, in particular, that he did it in such a way that people didn't know, even though the nature of TV was more episodic, you don't kill off your characters, people didn't know what was going to happen or if Picard was was really going to to die. I mean, and, and also when I think about this episode, uh, you know, the, the Borg had been introduced in Q Who, which is the first half of season two, right? And then you didn't, I think there were a couple of mentions of them, but you didn't see them until this this episode. So it was something that from what I've read, they were trying to figure out how to include the Borg or what to to do with them. So it took them about that that year and a half to kind of figure it out. And when they did, the way that they were presenting the Borg, they were just, you know, more menacing than ever, more of a threat than ever. And even though, of course, they still just have the one cube. But um the the way that it was put together, I remember, you know, watching it for the first time not all that long ago, probably six or seven years ago, but it's just such an exciting episode. And there's just this air of change around it because you have Commander Shelby coming on as as the Borg expert and she's bumping, you know, up against Riker. And I think also it would have been fascinating if Card had died and Riker was the captain and Shelby was the first officer for them to get along and move forward. Um, but yeah, it's, it's, it's pretty amazing. And I think like I've seen people comment, you know, more recently about best of both worlds saying the first part is amazing. And the second part is kind of a letdown and I've never seen it as that. I think the second part is really exciting and I love the way that it gets resolved with what data, you know, finds out and, and kind of, tricks their their kind of backup system but i don't know what what do you guys think because i have seen some commentary that some people think the second part doesn't quite live up to what the first one sets up yeah i would actually have to agree with that uh part two um wasn't wasn't the best episode uh i mean it was a great ending to it i mean it was i I, me personally i thought it was a cop-out to put them to sleep and um and then it explodes. well how would you have resolved it i don't no, know <laughs> that is the brilliance of it the so yeah. simple one word sleep and to try and you think oh put them to sleep like that's where your brain goes but no to get that hidden meaning that you know subtext of it that's what makes it brilliant but what I love about it, too, is that it, it also speaks to the Borg's arrogance, right? They're supposed to be, you know, these beings that are, um, you know, better than biological organisms. But there's kind of this loophole or backdoor that they can get into because I think in a way the Borg are arrogant enough not to kind of forestall all of those different possibilities. So it actually works really well for me. And I like the second part just as much. But, you know, I can see also how you might feel it's a it's a cop out and there's not a big confrontation, but they just kind of go to sleep. And it just seems ship, like, but. you know, the, the whole entire, you know, uh, the, the whole entire first episode was a, a huge dramatic, um, you know, like uh, build up. And then, of course, we get to the second one. and It's simple. Something as simple as sleep. I 
It doesn't it's do it for simple. me. simple. That's it what makes it, it brilliant. I, think, I will I think say it over and over again. You can And you can say it over and over again. <laughs> I'm going to tell you, I think it's a cop out. Um, but that's just me. I, I, I mean, I don't know. Maybe, I don't know. I honestly don't know what else was out on the on the table and what could end this episode as well. But I just think that, um, I don't know, something as simple as sleep was is something that they could have just done something different. I don't know. But, I mean... But yeah, it, if it wasn't a complete letdown, obviously we're ha- uh, we're happy to see Picard back. <laughs> but like, um, yeah, it could have. I, I think it could have ended something bigger. I mean, like a huge, a huge yeah. bang, like like I mean, it did for part one. Yeah, I mean, uh, no, that's fine, Richard. I mean, I think you're representing a certain segment of fans that feel that way that it was a mm-hmm. letdown. They probably could have, and they wouldn't have done this back then, but they probably could have made it bigger if. Picard was able to help in resolving this situation, but the strain on him and being disconnected from the collective was so much that he died, right? That would have been a big way to, to, to end it, right? Oh, my goodness. <laughs> oh, wow. That would, that would have sucked. <laughs> yeah, but I mean, that, again, that's something that maybe would be more likely to happen with today's TV, but that's a big way they could have ended it. And like for, for a moment, as I was watching it for the first time, I thought, oh, they're talking about the danger of him being disconnected from the collective and it might kill him. Like, what if it actually did and he sacrificed himself to, to save humanity, you know? That actually wouldn't be a bad ending. Well, I mean, obviously we'd lose Picard, but... Um that wouldn't be a bad ending to be quite It would be honest. shocking, right? It because you're be like, shocking. oh, he made he made it to the first episode of season four. He's fine. What? They just killed him at the end of this episode. He's back. What? No. <laughs> <laughs> oh wow. That yeah. So there that, we go. We rewrote it. There you go. There you go. And then uh, season, f- you know, the rest of the season five and six didn't exist. Sorry, guys. <laughs> no. <laughs> That's the end of the next generation. That's it. No. Dang it. But no, I mean, really, like, I think about the alternate, like, timeline where that something like that would have happened. It would have been such a different show. I don't know if it would have worked or if it would have been interesting, but I certainly would have missed Picard. No, definitely the continuation of Picard was a good idea, was was a smart move. And it obviously was a good move because I'm sure that everyone, I don't know, the internet now probably would have broke that his contract is going to be continuing on for the rest of the year, like, you know. TV shows get spoiled all the time here now, but like um, definitely we wouldn't have gotten those great, uh, you know, uh, great episodes in five and six and seven. And yeah. Yeah. (laughs) So, so what do you think if, you know, so that was one of the issues another one, like you said, with Shelby and Riker and having that conversation of Riker, why hasn't he moved on to be a captain? Um, what do you think Star Trek would have been or next gen if Riker did captain another vessel and we didn't see him again? Oh, if he just moved on and, and someone else was the first officer like Data or Shelby or something like that? Right. Yeah. Hmm. Hmm. That's because possibility. Michael Piller talks quite a bit about this, um, saying that, you know, because he had the one year contract and so was he going to stay or was he going to go? And he said that by the end of season one, I was struggling or season three, I was struggling with whether or not to stay or leave. And this came out in the screenplay, Best of Both Worlds, as Riker spoke about those issues. And he said that that whole conversations, you know, and his storyline, Riker's storyline was mirroring what he wanted and his discussions that he was having with himself. And he said, 
He remembered, as I was writing the script, I found myself in the position of Riker, who was trying to decide whether he wanted to leave the ship or not. Much of what happened in part one was about what was going on in my head. One of the scenes in particular, Pillar recalled, Riker is talking to Troy about why he hadn't left. That was really me speaking through Riker. The writer elaborated, when Riker talked to Troy about why am I still here and she's telling him because you're happy, that was a conversation I had with myself several times during the course of writing this show. So Pillar was finally wow. convinced to stay stay on as Gene Roddenberry personally urged him to do so. Wow, that, that's really interesting. And I love, I've seen a few other stories like that with other writers where they're kind of working something out with themselves and it comes out in a script that, you know, millions of people see it play out on the screen. I just find that whole idea really interesting. Um, yeah, but also if if Riker had decided, okay, maybe it's time for me to move on and captain my own ship, what would that, how would the show have been, it would have been, wouldn't have changed it quite as much as Picard dying, but it, it would have changed things. I mean, I think if depends on, it depends on how the crew sees it. Because uh, I, for some reason, I was just, I was thinking about, the, I don't know if you've read it or not, but um, and I hope everyone else has read it or at least part of it. <clears throat> in the first part of the, uh, the Enterprise book called Kobayashi Maru, mm-hmm. um, obviously we all know what what the ship is and what what the situation was. But it, it deals with the Enterprise, and he chose not to save. So um, it, it just uh, it, from, uh, from reading the book, uh, it, it reminds me of how everyone basically looked down on Captain Archer. And uh, basically, you know, you should have done this instead of this and save those people's lives and whatnot. And I'm just I was just thinking it's like maybe they could have they could have uh, gone from that angle where everyone was depressed about the situation. <clears throat> everyone was depressed about what happened and that they lost Picard because of this, even though Picard you know, sacrificed himself in order to save, you know, earth and, and whatnot. And maybe something like that doesn't get, sh- is not perceived uh, to the rest of the crew. And you can go through that, you know, sort of like you could, I mean, definitely you'll get that kind of drama and conflict that every show, you know, strives to do and ultimately hopefully becomes successful by telling other stories uh, through that uh, depression and whatnot. But like you could definitely do something like that um, is what I was thinking. Um, but I mean, I don't know if, if it maybe if uh, maybe this would all work if season five, six and seven sucked, <laughs> but it doesn't. <laughs> so it just gets yeah. better and better. So, uh, right. But, but yeah, like for, for Riker, I imagine if Picard survived, but Riker decided to go on to his own command and you just see him from, from time to time. Um, I mean, of course, you'd miss great episodes like Frame of Mind that we talked about in, in the last one, which is an amazing Riker episode and, and, and some others. Maybe we wouldn't have had Thomas Riker, but um, <laughs> or they come across this planet and they're like, Will, what are you doing here? Why do you look so different? <laughs> you got to go deep. Um, so that would have changed the show anyway the the i I guess one of the reasons why the best of both worlds is such like a powerful two-parter is because it is like a fork in the road where different things could branch off and different possibilities could happen and i really like when you have such a pivotal episode like that and best of both worlds is probably like that maybe more than any other tng episode where they could have gone a couple different directions 
Another thing I'd like to note is it seems like Michael Piller was very open, obviously, to new scripts coming in. And and also when uh, actors would say, hey, I think my character would do this. So it happened where Gates McFadden went to Piller and says, you know, I think I'd like to be fun to fire a phaser. And Michael Piller was happy to accommodate the actress's request. And so she goes on the away to get Captain Picard. And, you know, and in hindsight, it, it makes sense to have the doctor going and especially Beverly, you know, risking her life because of their past relationship, you know, and that makes it stronger there. But you'd want your medical officer going to retrieve Captain Picard for something like that. So I, I think it just speaks volumes to how he was open to the cast and crew and for ideas. And I think it makes the story better. Yeah, definitely. And I didn't even really, I haven't thought about that when I've watched the episodes before that you see her fire a phaser and you haven't before, but yeah. Does I mean, she it, do it that at any time different. after? Does she do it uh, after this episode? I don't remember uh, firing a phaser after this. Well, um, the high ground. Well, I don't know. If suspicions, she fires. suspicions, where she kills the 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 guy, the alien, right? Isn't oh, that what Crusher does? right, 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 right. Yeah. Wait, remember the. Hmm. I think that's her that does that. You know, the one where she's she brings these people together for this, I guess, research on metaphasic shielding, and there's yeah. this guy that they think is dead but isn't. Does doesn't she, she have to kill phaser? him at the end? I thought I thought they could put him into custody or something like that. Um, Pretty sure the guy dies, but I haven't seen it for a while. We just talked about it too. <laughs> it was one of my picks in season six. Yeah. Suspicions? Are you sure? Positive. Positive. Hmm. Um. This is where we say our memories aren't that good for certain things. Yes, clearly. And thank <laughs> God week. for Memory Alpha. <laughs> I don't know, but maybe I I I don't remember her firing her phaser. To be quite honest, I don't. I don't remember at all. Uh, wait, 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 wait. Yes, she does. Mm-hmm. Yep, she does. Yeah, she blows a hole in his torso. That's, that's right. It. Yeah, there's a picture of it right there. As soon as you said that, it came out. I'm like, yep, that's right. Okay. So, yeah, not only does she fire a phaser, <laughs> she but she kills, kills someone, someone later on. Yeah. Hmm. Mm. And I guess Best of Both Worlds set the stage for that. <laughs> Maybe. <laughs> oh, my goodness. So, I know we already talked about it, but I want to go back because now I was just reading this and talking about putting the Borg to sleep. So Pillar preferred that the Borg would be defeated not by sheer strength, but by ingenuity from Picard's human insight. Like Picard, Pillar sought to defeat the group of formidable villains by determining an unexpected and subtle weakness, ultimately setting the solution of putting the Borg to sleep. The notion of using the Borg's interdependence as their vulnerability suddenly occurred to Pillar a mere two days before filming on the episode was scheduled to start. That would be so nerve wracking. Well, we got to yeah. start filming. Um, I don't know how it's going to come out two days before. I just can't even imagine the stress. And so I just found that very interesting. Like yeah, it well, was a it, tough problem to solve. I mean, he wrote a fabulous yeah. cliffhanger. So how's he going to do it? You know? Yeah. I mean, not only come, like probably anytime it's stressful to come up with it two days before, but so many millions of people were highly anticipating the conclusion of this cliffhanger. So there was even more stress on on that. 
So, wow, that's, that's pretty incredible that he came up with it just a few days before. I mean, and as I said before, when I first saw it, that, that ending made sense. It didn't feel like a, a cop-out to me, but I know not everybody feels that way. Yeah, he says, we got to the scene where they had to solve the problem. Time was running out. There was only 10 minutes left in the show. And um, finally, they came up with the answer that the Borg's strength was also their weakness, that their interdependence was their strength, and interdependence could lead to their defeat. Sleep. Yes. <laughs> He's like, I can and, and remember the smile on my face when I heard that. I said, oh, that is cool. And that's how we ended it. No, Patrick Stewart's really good. I mean, I, I love, the, you know, when when he becomes part of the collective and there's part at the end where he's kind of half half in one and the other. I think Patrick Stewart does an amazing job of these different kind mm. of parts of, of the character. And, you know, just overall, all the acting and everything, I think it's... It's so strong. I mean, we could probably talk about Best of Both Worlds for, you know. Why haven't we? A long time. <laughs> I think it's been talked about before. But this was our big <laughs> moment to talk about it for, what, 20 minutes or something like that? <laughs> well, because, you know, Michael Pillar's so, I mean, this is his episode. I, I Well, these two parts, you know. I mean, this is really where he's stamping his imprint on the rest of Trek. I mean, those the previous shows, definitely, but, like, this is major, you know? And he's the only one that's credited on it. Now, for these things, a lot of times there's people that help in an uncredited way, but because he was a showrunner, probably he was doing all of it, and he's the only one that's credited, and on a lot of the other episodes, he has, you know, different co-writers for it. But, yeah, this is, like, his big statement, isn't it? Mm. Yeah, you can see... Also, um, Pillar's hand in the Picard and Riker, and is Riker big enough to fill the center chair and take on his command? And and that sort of, we see episodes after where Riker comes across a decision, should I take this command or not throughout the rest of the series, and has started here. All right, so the the next one that, that he wrote after writing Best of Both Worlds as episode 26 of season three and episode one of season four was... Uh, season four, episode 15, First Contact. So the episode, not the movie. <laughs> um, and I actually had occasion to rewatch this one uh, just recently, but I'll, I'll get your guys' thoughts first because I'm curious what you think about the episode. Uh, Amy? So tell, remind our listeners what this one is because oh, yeah, the yeah, movie sorry. is so well known that sometimes <laughs> they forget. <laughs> no, no, you're, you're, you're totally right. Um, okay, so First Contact. Uh, basically... Um, there's this civilization that's on the edge of getting warp capability and the Federation has been kind of monitoring their progress and they put down some observers on the planet. Uh, one of them is Riker and I think he gets injured, has to go to a hospital. They, su they suspect he's an extraterrestrial. Of course, he denies it. Um, but then during that time when Riker's lost and, and Picard doesn't know where he is, um, I guess as part of their usual first contact procedures, they go to see um, the main scientist who's working on their warp program, a woman named Marasta Yale, and tell her you know, about the Federation and first contact, bring her up to the ship. And they do the same thing with, the, um, I guess, what's kind of their prime minister of, of the planet. Um, but, you know, in the end, when, um, you know, and Picard tells them, oh, of course, if, you know, you don't want to have any contact with us, you we can leave and you'll never see us again. Um, and there's a group that really doesn't want uh, anything to do with, with extraterrestrials and they're offended that the Federation has had these 
people observing them for for some years and they tell them to leave and never come back so that's kind of the episode i I find it really interesting uh this is actually one of my picks for season four um this is definitely how i could see it uh first contact for here actually um here on earth i i i mean i would hope someone from another planet doesn't hear hear us (laughs) <laughs> but like um, maybe they're observing our podcast right now yeah next you know we're all gonna get abducted <laughs> although you know what we're not on the edge of warp capability so maybe not <laughs> may, uh, yeah yeah maybe yeah maybe <laughs> but like uh this is definitely one of those episodes that you know i could see a lot of people freaking out um all of a sudden and i'm i would not doubt it if there are groups out there that, are, that don't want to have alien contact and whatnot um but like I could totally see some, uh, you know, a, a group like this just freaking out and just, you know, about an alien, especially if it came out into the public. Um, yeah, and we, I, I think we talked about um, Roswell, didn't we? Talk about uh, talking about uh, some of the some of the restaurants that they have out there in Area Fifty One <laughs> or in New Mexico too. No, on Earl Grey. Yeah, Did we talk about that? No, I remember us talking about it. I just no. Am I, am I just talking about another conversation? <laughs> Maybe shaking your head. I don't remember. All right, apparently I'm, so I'm the sorry. crazy one here. So, all right. <laughs> but like, I mean, it's just, it, there's a lot. There's just, uh, it's it's a great episode. I, it's To me, it's comedic, but it's also very a serious episode that, it, you know, we just need to be mindful because this very well could happen to us. If you don't believe in life in another planet, then, well, then ignore what I just said. <laughs> so... Yeah, I really enjoyed this. And uh, Michael Piller says that he found the concept irresistible to show for the first time how first contacts are dealt with in the Federation. Um, He said what held the episode back was not the idea itself. And he says, our rules told us we never have open shows. And we wrote the first two drafts from our point of view and realized it wasn't working. The thing that was holding us back was a rule. And I'm very much a supporter of the rules of Gene's universe, but I also love to break them if they're in the interest of the show. I went to Rick and said, even though I know he doesn't like to break the format, this could be a special show if he would let me write it from the alien point of view. He did as long as I let everyone know that we weren't going to ever break this rule again. No other show in the history of Star Trek has taken an alien perspective of our characters, and I think it makes it very special and unique. This format ended up um, also being on Voyager Distant Origin. Mm-hmm. But I was yeah, thinking about that one, yeah. <laughs> yeah, so to take that from the alien perspective, um, I one of those genes rules that you know these writers had to be under, but I think it really does a good thing when we get to see that perspective and say, well, yeah, we get to meet the Enterprise D through fresh pair of eyes. Yeah. Um, I think that I do really like the idea of seeing something from an alien perspective. I mean, it has a, you know, a certain relevance because, you know, in discovery, we're seeing things from a Klingon perspective as well as a Federation perspective. But this was kind of the first time that that was, I guess, done in, in Star Trek. But, the, the, you know, as I was rewatching the episode <clears throat> yesterday, a couple of questions came up in my mind, like, okay, so, 
they're on the edge of warp capability. Picard says they want to avoid avoid just a random first encounter in space. So they just beam down to the scientist's office and surprise her. I mean, I would think a lot of things could go wrong if you do that. Um, and they do the same thing with the minister and they have all of these observers. Now, we've seen before this, I think, yeah, in Who Watches the Watcher, where, Watchers, where they have like this duck blind kind of area and they're observing people and something goes wrong. But I could see something going wrong less often with that than you send people to just like walk around on the street and observe things. It seems like a lot of things could go wrong with that. And maybe this episode points that up, but I kind of question the Federation's first contact procedures you know, why not wait until you do meet them in space and they're more ready for it than surprising them and um, and then having to reveal to them that they you've been spying on them? I mean, imagine if that happened on Earth. Some extraterrestrials came. They're like, hey, guys, you know, we infiltrated your society for a couple of years, but it's cool. We're good. Don't worry about it. We just want to make contact. I mean, people would be in an uproar, right? I mean, like, how could the Federation think that's a good idea to do that, you know? But I well, love I Lucy think it, it only happened. <laughs> oh, what did you say, Richard? I said, but I'm making Lucy, a reference. I love Lucy is odd. <laughs> You're making a reference to Carbon Creek, the Enterprise yep. episode, right? <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, Amy. Go ahead. I think they only beamed down because they, it was a dire situation, right? No, 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 lost. no. It's 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 it, it's not necessarily that part. But for several years, they've had people that landed on the planet made themselves up to be like the the native species there and just walked among them. I mean, that's bound to sow some real like distrust when you find out that that's been happening. Like, I can't imagine that that's a good policy. It just seems like such a bad idea. But anyway, that's well, I guess yeah, what I, I was I can thinking. see your point. I mean, only sense I mean, you can only do so much with sensors. I mean, you could see them from the ground. I guess you could you could hear their conversations from the sky and, and whatnot. Or see them from the ground. Oh my gosh! <laughs> Just <laughs> see them on the from ground. yeah, see them from space is what I mean. You know, and e- even listen to their conversations if you get close enough. But still, I mean, it's one thing when you uh, when you observe and and whatnot. It's another thing when you interact and actually start to get to know them and in whatnot for the most part. And I think to and you know maybe we, we could uh, maybe we would be able to find out a, a species that. You know, has the same kind of values as we do. But I'm sure there are. I mean, I'm sure there are species out there that don't even come close to what our values are. Maybe those uh, species we don't even try to make contact unless they make contact with us. And I'm just thinking that that would probably be a good policy to just to know, just to get to know them. I mean, maybe not a long uh, duck blind uh, mission or something like that, but definitely just long enough to where you can actually get a feel for what's going on. I guess, you know, I, if you really want it, uh, I don't know if you want to watch our news and <laughs> what's on television for us, but, you know, I... They actually had a comment in the episode like, yeah, we watched your transmissions, but... You know, there's only so much we can learn. And I think, you know, one of the, I think maybe it was Marasta was like laughing, like, yeah, you're not going to learn what you really need to from that. I mean, imagine if people just watch like our reality TV or something and they thought that's who everybody was, right? My goodness, that would be just crazy. Or they could just watch Star Trek. Let's just start broadcasting uh, Star Trek on the radio waves or whatever that gets out there in space. And then, yeah, they'll watch that first. No, probably not first, (laughs) but yeah. Yeah. But I mean, all concerns about how the Federation does things aside, I think it is a really great episode. And 
I, I love that you're you're seeing this first contact with a species and it ends up in them saying, no, we don't want to, to see you for a while. Although it is very interesting that Marasta decides to go with them uh, to to experience being in space. So they've already had like a big impact on their civilization because they're taking what their main space administrator or something. And I thought about it afterwards, like, okay, are they just going to have some cover story that she just disappeared? <laughs> Oh, she's gone. Uh, uh, can't find her. Training accident. <laughs> Training accident. Sorry. So, but it, it does bring up a lot of interesting questions, and of course, thinking about what first contact would would be like for us on Earth if it actually happened. Could it be like the movie First Contact? Could it be like the first contact here? Could it be something worse or in the middle? I don't know. Who knows? It's totally unpredictable. But it, yeah, this episode's interesting to think about about that. So the last one we'll look at today, but of course, remember, listeners, we'll look at other Michael Pillar episodes as well as Insurrection uh, next week. Uh, but uh, the last one we'll be taking a look at is Season 5, Episode 3, Ensign Row. Now, we did talk about this one in quite a lot of detail in a previous Earl Grey episode where we talked about um, Ensign Row. Um, and as a lot of people know, I love her character. But um, just wanted to see if there were you know, other comments that we had to, to make about this episode or Michael Piller's involvement in it? Well, Michael Piller felt that the introduction of Roe was a success. He's quoted to say, it's one of the season's greatest accomplishments, not just by Rick and I, but by the acting of Michelle, who is just a wonderful performer. You don't just throw in new people because this audience is really particular about who they're going to make part of the family. But I've heard almost no resistance to Ensign Roe. Well, that's just because I haven't seen Conundrum yet, and then I get resistance. But he was talking about it at the time. At the time, it first aired. Yeah. <laughs> yes, exactly. I'm just putting my two cents in there. <laughs> like if I you've said before, to lost our her memory. Row <laughs> it was a, they didn't know any better. I mean, come on. Yes, but <laughs> Pillar credits this success as due to the use of Guinan. Quote, I think Guinan embraces Roe in a very personal way. She basically took Roe by the hand and said she deserves your attention and deserves to be embraced by you. When she took Roe to Picard for that very reason, in essence, she was doing that to our audience. It was not a very easy show to write. It was not until we found that relationship between Roe and Guinan that I was personally satisfied that had, we had really done something magnificent. And I think you can see that relationship with Roe and Guinan later in the one where they are kids. Rascals. Yeah, rascals. <laughs> uh, not little rascals, just rascals. And <laughs> But you can see that. And that relationship started with Michael Piller writing that here in Ensign Roe. Yeah, and, and that Roe-Guinan interaction, I think that's, it was brilliant for them to, to do that. And it works, it works really well. Actually, Amy, I had something in a book that I have, which is the 50-year mission, the next 25 years, that Michael Piller also had to say about, about Roe that I wanted to, to share. Oh, great. Please um, do. Yeah. So, so he said, um, what was in the back of our minds was the need for a character, and we thought we needed another woman on the show. When we talked about what kind of woman we would want, we thought it would be nice to have someone who had a little backstory and somebody we could use to create some conflict. So Rick and I, that's Rick Berman, uh, worked on the concept of Roe, and it was a show I was very satisfied with. So it's kind of interesting that they wanted to create a new character, I guess a new recurring character, um, and that they wanted it to, to be a woman. Um, and, you know, as I've said, I think it's a really strong character, one of my favorites, and one of the inspirations for Kira on Deep Space Nine, who's 
my favorite character in Star Trek. Um, but yeah, they, they had this intention, like we're going to create this character, has some backstory, has some conflict, which was something different than, than before. And they executed it and they were, you know, happy with it. And I know not every fan loves, loves Roe, but I think there are a lot of people that love the character and appreciate that she's a little different than the rest of the cast. Again, we listeners, we did talk about the, the episode Ensign Roe um, a, a lot in our Roe episode. If you haven't checked that out, we, uh, I think, had a good time talking about the eight episodes that, that Roe is in. Um, so I think that's Earl Grey 181. Um, okay, so now that we've talked about these seven episodes, the first half of the ones that Michael Piller wrote or co-wrote um, on The Next Generation, what are your final thoughts about you know, what these episodes kind of say as, as a group or, or what they might say about Michael Piller? Well, one thing that I notice, and I really like that we're doing this because I think we can see overall maybe some main general themes. And what I pick up in, in seeing Michael Piller's work on Next Generation is his true love and development of characters. I mean, an evolution with, where we're developing Wesley and, and getting that and booby trap with Jordy's, you know, relationship and how he and start his arc. Um, and then with Worf and the enemy, obviously character development we talked about with Riker um, and, and his choosing to stay and, and his arc throughout the rest of the seasons and Shelby and and. I really see these character developments, Ensign Rowe and Guinan, that are going through and that sort of take us through the rest of the series and that they're set up here with season three um, with Michael Piller starting and bringing that and seeing also the human condition and what we can overcome and the challenges that we have as as mankind you know, paralleled through these stories of, of the next generation. So I'm, it's, I love seeing all of these episodes and talking about them together so that we can see his overall contributions to the next gen and how great they are. Excellent. Uh, Richard, final thoughts for today? I wish you'd have made more. <laughs> yes. Or, or I wish you would have came on board a lot earlier. <laughs> yes. Oh my gosh. How yeah. great would it have been to have him on season two or one? Yeah. I, I really, I mean, these are all great stories. Uh, he, could, he definitely could have uh, came out with a lot more. Had he been on the show? I don't know. I don't know when he uh, up and decided that he wanted to be a part of Star Trek or, or if he got, um, or when he, you know, um, was considered for Star Trek. But I mean, for sure. Well, I think I think he was just asked at the beginning of season three to to help out and run the show well, after. Well, someone Maurice should have left. realized his talent and asked him in season one sooner. Yep, <laughs> yeah. agreed. But there was there was so much chaos on the show the last uh, the first couple of years. Oh, have you, you mean guys seen yeah. chaos on the bridge? Yeah, chaos on the bridge is what I'm thinking of because that's. Have you seen that, Richard? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I have. Yeah, if <laughs> and listeners, if you haven't seen that, it's a great documentary. Uh, that's helmed by by William Shatner, where he interviews people involved in the first two seasons of The Next Generation, and things were crazy, crazy on that show. It's amazing that like anything got done at all, <laughs> right? And that we got some of the good episodes we did. And it yeah. was covered on an Earl Grey episode as well, Chaos on the Bridge with the original Earl Grey crew. I was gonna say no, we didn't. Okay, <laughs> it wasn't us, but I guess it was covered yes. on a previous I was one. Like, I was like, what are you talking about? <laughs> Yeah, but I mean, otherwise, I mean, I, it, all these episodes are fantastic. They really are. It, uh, it, overall, they're all they're all fantastic. They really are. They a lot of them. I mean, it's all 
obviously he wanted to give him a big, really big story for best of part, uh, best of both worlds, part one. But he, uh, all the other stories definitely give a very good message, uh, for, especially if you, you know, go in depth with them and and whatnot. But yeah, it it's a really he he's come up with a lot of good stories. Absolutely love him. No, yeah. I mean one thing I think about as I think of going through these uh, seven episodes. I think a theme that comes through a lot of them is working together. So like in the episode evolution, the, the crew has to work together to, to figure out what's going on with these nanites and try to understand things. You know, in, in booby trap, uh, Jordy has to work together with a holographic representation of, you know, an engineer that helped to develop the, the enterprise. Um, and, you know, in the enemy, Jordy has to work together with a Romulan. In Best of Both Worlds, you know, Riker and Shelby and a lot of the rest of the crew have to work together to figure out how they can get out of this difficult situation. Now, I think it's a little bit different in something like uh, First Contact, which which is more about um, what can go wrong in a First Contact situation. Um, but, you know, at, at the same time... Um, you know, that one is, is very much about their desire to, to help work together with a new civilization. It just doesn't work out in this case. Um, I mean, for Ensign Rowe, there's a huge amount of conflict at the beginning, but the crew kind of learns to, to work with her and to, to really, uh, Picard especially, to trust her opinion so they can work together and resolve the situation. So that's one of the things that I see a lot of is his interest in seeing the crew work together to resolve, you know, difficult situations or ones that they haven't seen before. Agreed. Yeah. That's great point out. Yeah, and I and I do love Amy uh, when we go through these and we can see some of these commonalities or different different things in groups of episodes. It's really great, and you know, I'm looking forward to doing it again next week with the rest of the Michael Pillar episodes and yes. the movie. Well, it's been fun talking about episodes written by Michael Pillar today, but that isn't the only thing we've been talking about here on the network. Here's what you may have missed elsewhere on Trek FM. Previously on Trek.fm, The Edge, a Star Trek Discovery podcast. For an opening episode to get that relationship, like you could see that that crew really had been working together for seven years, which is so wow. not normal for a launch for a first episode, right? Because you, yeah. you've got the odds, but they seemed to be have working forever together. The camaraderie that they had, the trust that they have with each other. To the journey! And then, you know, they're all up on the bridge and everyone's like, oh, what's Bellana doing with her day off? And Tom's like, oh, she's binge-watching Bill Nye. <laughs> she's been there, you know, in her PJs since 8 o'clock this morning. <laughs> I can picture she's been watching Bill Nye all day. Tom comes home and she says to Tom, you know, Tom, have you ever thought about wearing a bow tie? <laughs> but if he's on the bridge and says all that, would Captain Janeway know who Bill Nye the science guy is? Uh, yeah. <laughs> it's Janeway. The 602 Club. So I graduated from high school in 1984. So this film came out in my, what, sophomore year in high school? So that was like prime formative years for me. Um, this is, you know, this and Mad Max were the R-rated movies that me and all of my friends wanted to go see. Meta Trex. It knows to point that out and say, that's red. You know, it, it will correctly identify the red shirt as red. But really perceives it like we perceive blue. I knew Kirk should have wore his green tunic when he went to fight the Gorn. 
Yeah, it would have made all the difference. It would have made all the difference. And that's what else is happening on Trek.fm. Check out all of these shows and join the conversation about your favorite corner of the Star Trek universe and beyond. You'll find us wherever you get your podcast. If you're an Apple user, be sure to hit the subscribe button in Apple Podcasts on iPhone, iPad, or Apple TV, or the desktop iTunes app to get the latest episodes as soon as they are published. And please leave us a star rating and written review. That really helps other listeners find us and to join in on the conversation. So please, we would love to hear what you think about the show. If you're not an Apple user, we've got you covered as well. You can find our shows on Google Play Music, Stitcher, TuneIn, Spreaker, SoundCloud, Windows Phone, in most uh, third-party apps, and you can stream and download the MP3 file from our website or grab the RSS link. We'd love to hear your thoughts on today's show, and there are many ways for you to do that. The best place is in the Babel Conference. That's our listeners group on Facebook. Just type Babel, B-A-B-E-L, into the search field on Facebook, and it should come right up. If you'd like to send us an email, you can use the form on, on our website at trek.fm contact. Choose to send to a show and select Earl Grey. That will come right to us. You can find you can also find the network on Twitter at TrekFM and on Facebook at Facebook.com slash TrekFM. So, Amy, where can people contact you? Well, you can find me here on the network. I co-host The Edge, which is TrekFM's podcast for our new Star Trek Discovery show. And I co-host with Brandon Shea Mutella, Aaron Harvey, and Mike Schindler. I also do a little show called Postcards from the Edge, where we talk about fan response for each episode. <laughs> you can find me on Twitter at Miss Amy Nelson, but my favorite place is on the Babel Conference. So, Richard, where can people talk to you on the interwebs? Little show. <laughs> well, they can. Little. Yeah, I know. Little. Hmm. <laughs> um, they can find me uh, on Facebook. Uh, I, I appear here and there in the, uh, on the Babel Conference. And if they want to contact me on Twitter, my handle is xransom. What about you, Justin? Uh, well, you can find me on Twitter. I'm at trekfan4747, where I tweet about nothing but Star Trek. Currently tweeting out my season three rewatch. I know it's been going on for a while, <laughs> but I got sidetracked by Discovery. <laughs> but I restarted it yesterday with Richard's favorite episode, Tin Man. Yeah, <laughs> I saw that on the tweet and just warm memories of Richard's love for Tin Man. It was, that yeah. was a good episode. My heart goes out for you. I thought about it too. <laughs> <laughs> so you can find me on, on Twitter um, and you can also find me hanging around the Babel Conference on Facebook. Uh, where can they find you on Twitter? Didn't I say it before? No. Should I start the whole thing again? No, just where can... <laughs> Okay, you can find me on Twitter at TrekFan4747, where I tweet about nothing but Star Trek. And yes, I probably did forget to say that. Thank you, Amy. Yes. (laughs) You can find me on Twitter somewhere. Tweet, tweet, tweet. (laughs) Well, if you would like to help us keep all of our shows coming to you each week, you can become a patron of the network on Patreon. Visit patreon.com slash trekfm. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash trekfm to get all the details. Perks include early access to episodes, exclusive content, producive credits, and more, available through our special patrons' website, Patron Zone. 
It requires a great deal of money to produce and distribute these shows each month. We really appreciate any support you can give us and hope you'll join the team. Again, you'll find the details at patreon.com slash trekfm. At this time, we'd like to give a special shout out to our associate producers, Norman Lau, Justin Ozer, and Michael Huter. Thank you so much for supporting Earl Grey. Thank you for listening, and we hope that you join us next time for another cup of Earl Grey. Great joy and gratitude. Today is a good day to die! Resistance is futile.